following conversation with racial justice and union activist Bill Fletcher Jr. originally aired on November 27, 2020 on the Radical Songbook on KPOV 88.9 FM High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. The Radical Songbook is hosted by Michael Funky. It is a two-hour show highlighting the role that music plays in social justice and protest, and it airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Bill Fletcher Jr. is a longtime labor, racial justice, and international activist. He's on the editorial board of The Black Commentator, a senior scholar with the Institute for Policy Studies, past president of Trans-Africa Forum. He's been active in the U.S. labor movement for over 40 years, from uh, local rank-and-file union movements to top staff positions in the AFL-CIO. He's authored four books, The Indispensable Ally, Black Workers and the Formation of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, 1934 to 1941. That's co-authored with uh, Peter Agard. Solidarity Divided. The Crises in Organized Labor and a New Path Toward Social Justice, which co-authored with Dr. Fernando Gapacine, former chair of the Central Oregon Labor Council. And Fernando, if you're listening, come on over to Central Oregon. I can get you into some steelheading on the Deschutes in sunny weather rather than, rather than the rain that you'll get on the, uh, on the Oregon coast. Um, and let's see, another book that Bill has written is They're Bankrupting Us and 20 Other Myths About Unions. Uh, and I believe that was the book that Bill was here in Bend. He did a, you did a book signing and reading at Dudley's back in 2013 when I last Correct. had you on the show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Bill's also the author of a novel, uh, The Man Who Fell from the Sky. I haven't read that book, but I've read about it, and I've, it should be coming to me in the mail soon, Bill. Excellent. Yeah. So I anyway. I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, I, I hope so. I, I'm, you know, I, it sounded, it sounds like it's pretty, it's a pretty cool novel, and, and I'm, I am looking forward to it. So anyway, welcome back to KPOV. Thank you. I'm really glad to be on board. I wanted to have you back on the Radical Songbook after reading uh, the November seventh article that you co-authored with uh, Carl Davidson, titled "Post-Election Reckoning: New Hypothesis for the Road Ahead," and. Um, you and you and Carl Davidson, you cover an awful lot of territory in this in this article. I've read it. I've read it many times now, and uh, I guess what I'd like to do is, ha- if you could start by highlighting for our listeners, and this is a broad question, the central themes of the of the the case that you're making, the argument that you're making, perhaps starting with. Um, uh, right at, as you start at the beginning of the article, the all-important issues of racism, voter suppression, and revanchism. I mean, there's so much to be said about the election, but let me just take those points. So I'm saying, and Carl is saying, that in looking at the election, race and racism, revanchism, and the rejection of reality, um, along with uh, voter suppression, are factors that have to be acknowledged as contributing to, uh, you know, what actually happened. And I would add to that the uh, corona pandemic, uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So let me, just, let me just take them. So the issue of race is um, multilayered. It's the entire way that Trump framed his presidency uh, as, in effect, a presidency to restore the white republic and and uh you know his from the very beginning his jabs at latinos and latinas his uh disparaging um 
African uh, majority countries. His um, sort of what you could you could argue really is this racial animus uh, in not just rhetoric but in practice that was that was central, and certainly his attitude towards police uh, brutality, which is the other side to what happened with race, which is the aftermath of the George Floyd murder and the protests and eruptions that took place around the country that received, uh, those protests received majority support in, in a country, uh, interestingly, um, and were responsible for a major electoral mobilization by uh, African Americans and by youth. So race was very central. Revanchism, which includes uh, race, is a term that was uh, is not used very much in the United States, but has been associated with uh, Germany, post World War One and post World War Two, revanchism uh, represents the politics of a particular kind of revenge. It's the revenge of someone that basically feels like something has been seized from them and they want it back. And in the United States, uh, the politics of revanchism includes issues of race and racism. This whole notion that white people are under threat that there's some sort of white genocide that's afoot. Uh, the revanchism also includes the idea of restoring uh, gender roles and, and basically retreating back to the 1950s and the era of Leave it to Beaver and Donna Reed, and that that's the role of women, uh, not to mention the complete disparaging and marginalization of non-gender binary groups. Uh, revanchism is also in the form of uh, the uh, foreign policy. Uh, you know, many people, Michael, really misread this notion of isolationism and, and not understanding in the United States, isolationism is not about autarky or being isolated. Isolationism historically in the United States means we do not want to be encumbered by foreign treaties because we want to be able to do whatever we want when we want to do it. And, and thus, you know, for, uh, for, for Trump, you know, the, um, the xenophobia and isolationism were all wrapped together. The United States should be able to, to do whatever it wants and, and bully whoever it wants and not have to worry about something like the International Court of Justice. Um, but then there's this thing uh, that we talked about, and I, I credit Carl with this, a rejection of reality, that millions of people voted uh, through, or through voting, expressed their notion that the COVID pandemic does not really exist, and that the uh, environmental catastrophe is not really unfolding, that there is no climate change. Now, you might say, or someone might say, well, no, that's not what people voted on. No, that is what people voted on. Now, they may want to believe something else, and they, in fact, might even believe that the COVID crisis uh, is true, and they may have even had members of their family die, but they supported a candidate whose policies and statements on a regular basis showed a, a dismissal of the pandemic 
and a dismissal of climate change. So what this ends up meaning is that millions of people, in effect, join the Flat Earth Society. And they, they came to embrace something that was not real, but something that they wanted to believe in. Now, one thing, and then I'll, I'll stop here, is the issue of voter suppression, which, which is um, interesting in that this was a historic election in terms of voter turnout. Yet one-third of the potentially, uh, potential electorate chose not to vote. The other thing that's important is that from 2009 on, from, from almost the moment that Barack Obama was elected, the Republican Party went into full gear with a voter suppression strategy. In fact, I found out recently the Republican Party is the only political party in the advanced capitalist world, the only major political party that has made voter suppression central to their strategy for victory. Uh, and, and it's really fascinating when you think about it, because they, in state legislature after state legislature, Republican majority to push through various kinds of voter suppression tactics, calling, uh, basically suggesting that there is some threat to, uh, to, the, to the election system, electoral system, and, and, and uh, a prevalence of fraud, when the reality uh, is that the likelihood of voter fraud is less than that of getting hit by lightning. And, and so, but the, but the Republican Party made a cause celebre the idea of voter suppression and they, uh, voter fraud, and they carried out this suppression, which included, uh, as has been pointed out uh, by a number of journalists, the purging of voter rolls, the wholesale purging of voter rolls around the country making it more and more difficult for people to vote, which is actually what makes it fascinating that so many people did vote in this election. Yeah, I would absolutely, because one of my greatest fears was that the suppression of the vote that had been, has been going on by the Republicans and state legislators for so long that that we would really, that, that, the, the, that the vote for for Biden and against Trump would really be curtailed by that, and and undoubtedly it was. I mean, imagine, uh, listeners, if there hadn't been any voter suppression, what the turnout would have likely been in support of of Joe Biden. Uh, I, go ahead, Bill. No, I was just going to say that I think that it actually may have had an effect on uh, down ballot elections. Right. Uh, that as to you know why this was not a blue. Wave, which I also think has to do with the pandemic, which is why I think people need to be very careful about the conclusions that they draw about this election. This was a very unusual election carried out in a very strange time. Yeah, absolutely. So when you when you talk about the the um, the vote, you know, the, a vote against reality. Uh, and you talk about revanchism. I mean, there's also. So, what do you feel that the vote against reality was? Was it was it a also uh, not only a dismissal of the pandemic and climate change, but a dismissal of racism, or was it a combination of that perhaps and um, an acceptance of racism? I mean, the majority of white people in this country um, 
voted for Donald Trump in 2020, which in my mind is really a worse thing to know, to, to realize, than the number of people that voted for him in 2016, because yeah. they voted for him after four years in office. And to me, I don't know. So uh, is there a is there a dismissal of racism, or, you know, just like uh, doesn't matter, or are, or are we talking about, uh, you know, a core of racist racists that, uh, I mean, how big how big is the racist movement among white people in this country? Well, okay, so there's a number of questions in that one question. Yeah, I'm so sorry. let's <laughs> unpack them uh, because they're all very very important. If you look at electoral patterns in this country. It appears that somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of the electorate are people that I would call zombies. Uh, they are people that have, in effect, they're thoroughly right-wing and have lost their humanity. They have no empathy uh, towards um, other sections of the population. And they, they would not vote Democratic if the prophet Moses showed up and instructed them to do so. Um, so you have that. So the good news is that we're dealing with probably about 75% of the electorate that is uh, in somewhat, some degree or another in touch with reality. Uh, now, this becomes very important when we started to talk about strategy and building a strategy to change this country. But I'll get back to that. So the second thing is that Trump, we have to go back to Nixon and Reagan in some ways in order to understand Trump, but particularly Reagan. What Reagan did upon uh, uh, being elected and, and throughout his campaign was to, in effect, say that the problem of racial injustice was now over, that uh, that segregation was over, and that now anybody that didn't do well, the problem lay in them or with them. And that, yes, there were going to be racists, and those racists would be, in effect, asses, and, and it was an individual matter, but it was no longer systemic. Now, this is central. This is what white people wanted to hear, because it basically said, we don't need to do anything groundbreaking, uh, anything fundamental to ad address the nature of the system and the history and the legacy of it. We can basically just say, we won. It's over. And, and so when you go from Reagan to today, what then happens is it's not just simply that there's no racism, but nah, it's, the problem is flipped. And now the problem is that there is allegedly anti-white racism, that there's discrimination against white people, and that good white people are systematically being excluded from various opportunities. Now, the fact that nobody could ever, ever demonstrate any of that statistically, uh, and that at best people will come up with what uh, this uh, friend of mine calls the man-who problem, uh, that is, that everyone can come up with the man who did this or the man who did that. Um, and, and, you know, everyone can do it. It's just like, you know, everybody has a, a story about a taxi uh, driver 
that took them the wrong place and charged them a lot of money. But that doesn't say anything about the taxi industry. And, and the same is true when it comes to race. And you've got this problem. But it, it is a convenient problem, Michael. And it's, it's a way people can feel comfort and not having to change anything. So when people voted for Trump, because I think most white people are not stupid, um, they knew quite well what he was saying. So one is that they wanted to believe that there really isn't a racial problem anymore, that it's, it's, that all is gone. Um, there were others that voted for him precisely because they knew he was a racist, and they enjoy it. Uh, and and it's, just, it's not just about him being a racist. It's about him being a misogynist, about him being a bully. There have been repeated studies that have identified these kind of very antisocial behaviors among younger people that have been accentuated by the Trump years. Because the man at the top basically said it was okay to make fun of disabled people, right? It was okay to bully people. It was okay to talk about grabbing women in their genitals. Um, that it was okay. And, and that sort of opened up a Pandora's box. Right, and and it also, I mean, it was and it was okay to to in Charlottesville to carry torches and and march like the Nazis did in the thirties, right? That's I mean, right. Yeah. So so this twenty five to thirty. I like that you call them zombies, by the way. Just uh, for our listeners, I'm talking to uh, to Bill Fletcher Jr., uh, who's an international internationally known racial justice activist and trade union activist. So this twenty five to thirty percent. I mean, it, this goes back decades and decades and decades. I mean, we can, you know, I mean, it, it just goes back forever, right? And sometimes right. it was even larger than that. I mean, I recall that when uh, Richard Nixon resigned, the day that he stepped down, 25% of the country was still backing him, right? Yeah. And so, and so, I guess, so I go back and forth with my friends, my progressive friends, about what to do about this This 25 to 30%. Are they... Are they redeemable or no? You know, I, that, no. I, I agree with you. Yeah, they're not. <laughs> I, I I think you ignore them. I mean, I like I like to I like to um, say to people, you know, I have a doctorate in zombieism, <laughs> and uh, and I've studied zombies quite a bit, and like probably many of your listeners who've watched many zombie movies, and one of the things that you notice about zombies is that once someone becomes a zombie, they they don't return to humanity. Uh, they remain zombies. And I think what we have to understand is that the zombie force in the United States, this, this uh, minority that is very vocal and has an armed element to it, uh, is there is no empathy there. There is no convincing them. The only thing that will happen with any of them that may change them is if there's some sort of paradigm crisis. You know, like, like something really dramatic happens that shatters their worldview. And this happened to many soldiers that went to Vietnam. You know, that yeah. they went there, you know, rally around the flag, let's fight communism. They got over there, and it's like their entire paradigm was shattered once they got there, and they realized what was going on and what was not going on. And some people came back very politicized. Others came back shattered. Uh, in one way or another. So I would say that uh, what we cannot afford to do 
is to focus on trying to win over uh, the core uh, Trump voter, um, because they won't be won over. They, they, they have a, a self-reinforcing um, bubble within which they operate. You know, I, I remember, and I always tell people, Michael, about when um, during the 1960s, when one of the Gemini missions uh, was going on, you know, to circle the Earth, um, there was a message of congratulations that was sent to the astronauts of one of the missions from the Flat Earth Society, which is based in Britain. And the message said, and I'll never forget this, I was a kid, but I remember, the message said, uh, congratulations, we know what you're looking at uh, looks like a circular Earth. But what you need to understand is that that's an optical illusion. <laughs> right? It's like, what do you do with that, man? Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, how do you argue someone out of something like that? Right. Uh, and, and I've had this experience. I, I got trapped a couple of years ago in a discussion with someone who I ultimately understood to be a Trump a Trumpster. Uh, but in the beginning, I, I didn't realize that. And, and it was like, no matter what question I posed to them, they had an answer. Or what they would do is they would become very silent and then simply shift the subject. So, like, for example, when I asked them, I said, just explain this to me. When Trump announced he was running in 2015, he talked about Mexicans creating crime. And uh, I said, and the person said, yeah. I said, okay. So, um, but, but, you know, it's interesting because... During his entire campaign, he never once mentioned the crime organization that is most feared by U.S. law enforcement. And she looked at me, she knew what I was talking about. I said, the Russian mafia. I said, why didn't he talk about the Russian mafia? Right? Why was he going to talk about the Mexicans? Why would he talk about MS-13? What? I mean, if the main threat came from the Russian mafia... Why wasn't he talking about that? No answer. Yeah. Um, and, and you can go on and on with examples of this where either you get no answer or you get some bizarre uh, runaround. So I'm just saying to people that what we have to do, we mean in progressive people, is that we really have to concentrate on building up the self-awareness of what I call the new majority. There is a new majority, and it's partly represented in the, um, the vote for Biden, and it's partly represented by large numbers of people that are still despairing and don't think that voting makes any difference. Those are the ones that we have to reawaken. And, yeah, I don't want to dwell too much on, on, the, on the, the zombies. Uh, the, the, one of the problems, of course, with them, and you, and you point this out in your, in your article, the article you and Carl Davidson wrote, is that there are some over, overtly fascist folks there, and they're armed. That's and, right. And, that is, and, and we've seen them in action um, yes. with their guns. And, and it, so that, that's concerning, and I, and I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't own a gun myself, and I'm not planning to buy a gun. You know, uh, I mean, it's just not 
in my it's just not what I am, right? You know, and I know a lot and I have a lot of friends like that too and we've talked about it. You know, and so I'm not sure what we do uh about that except you know, and the uh, tr- Trump has allowed them to come out into the wood uh, come out into That's the right. open more and and they've always been there and they've always been pushed back in the shadows or not always, but we've there are times in our history I should say, where we've managed to really push them back into the shadows and make what they do and what they represent reprehensible and, and immoral and all, you know, just basically not what the country wants. So I, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm well, kind of rambling here, but I... No, no, you know. no. It's, I think you're raising a very important point, one that I'm grappling with and many other people I think are. Uh, so one is that I believe in self-defense. So if the fascists attack any of us, we have the right to defend ourselves and do whatever we need to do in order to defend ourselves. And uh, if people want to get guns to do that, you know, I'm a Second Amendment guy. I say, get it. You want to get an, MR, an AR-15, you go, you go for it. Um, and you defend yourself. But I think that the main defense is going to be outnumbering them. And, uh, and, and always out-organizing them. And, and many people have been very successful with that. You don't need to call a press conference to announce what you're going to do to these fascists. That's not, there's no point to that. But it's like, when they show up, we need to have double the number of people. Um, we need to be talking to the people who are the potential base for these fascists, many of whom are confused, many of whom are suffering, you know, like there's all these white people that are dying uh, from the opioid crisis. I mean, there's a humongous number of white people that are dying, which is why we now call it an opioid crisis. When blacks and Puerto Ricans were dying, eh, it wasn't so much a crisis. But when white people start dying, it obviously becomes a crisis. And, and so there's a lot of white people dying. And they're dying because their lives are going to hell. The... the, the, the um, the living standard for the average working person in this country has been in decline or stagnant since the mid-1970s. So the whole promise of the American dream has, in effect, evaporated. And that is kicking the rear of white people who thought that all they had to do was to tolerate racism, tolerate U.S. foreign policy, and that their lives would improve. And, and now it turns out they were lied to. They were played for suckers. And, and that really pisses people off. When, you know, whenever you find out you've been a sucker or played for a sucker, it pisses you off. So the question is then, do you get picked, picked, uh, pissed off with the person who played you, or do you get pissed off with the person who told you? Yeah. Yeah, and, and right now a lot, a lot of people that have been conned uh, by Trump are still buying the con and still blame, right. you know, and which is, you know, it's a, it's a tough nut to crack, I guess, you know, is, is so, so what you're, and I, you're, you're kind of part of what you're talking about, you know, is outnumbering them and out organizing them kind of gets to another part of um, the article that uh, in my mind, at any rate, that you and Carl wrote the part about uh, movement building and, and you, you raised some interesting stuff about movement building and let me just preface it by saying and my listeners know this i talk a lot on the radio here about you know we need to build a mass movement you know and i and i think back i'm old enough to think back to what that what that means to me in terms of the anti-war movement of the uh, uh of the late 60s and early 70s 
uh, historically for me at any rate, the civil, the civil rights and freedom struggle of the 50s and 60s that I was younger. But nonetheless, I mean, I can see, I, I, I've, I've, I've lived through examples of what I see to be building a movement. But you, but you raise a lot of questions about what that means. Uh, and so I wondered if you would, if this would be an appropriate time to maybe segue to that in terms of what mm-hmm. you're talking about, about outnumbering and outorganizing uh, the opposition. Well, you know, it's in a, in a nutshell, what, what Carl and I are getting at is that we've got to build organizations. Um, and that to talk about movement building in and of itself is not enough. I'll give you an example. Um, the, uh, when Barack Obama was elected in 2008, um, you know, vast um, assortment of folks supported him. And when he was uh, he took office, there were these great expectations of him. Yeah. And he let a lot of people down. I mean, on the one hand, you know, he pulled the country out of out of uh, economic collapse, and that was that was great. But he kept believing that he could be the adult in the room when he was around Republicans and convince them to be bipartisan, and they were cutting him off at his knees. Now. Um, it, it's it's organizations that flow out of movements or help to generate new movements that become important. If you want to keep, if you wanted to keep Obama doing the right thing, you you can't just say, well, the labor movement needs to do that. No, it's actually unions need to organize and go to the White House. And basically slam them, right? It, it's not just this abstract, the labor movement or the black freedom movement. You actually need organizations to go and organize constituencies and to get people in motion. And, and if you don't think at that level, the problem is it becomes self-defeating. Right now we're looking at a, a, a problem, this problem reemerging. So we have Biden has been elected, which is great. Um, and but Biden is saying, well, you know, we gotta gotta reach across across the aisle to the Republicans. The Republican leadership is evidencing no interest in accepting a handshake from him. Now, the problem, the, the the danger is that Biden will continue to believe that by being the adult in the room, being a former senator, that he'll be able to convince the Republican leadership under Mitch McConnell. To act right, it is unlikely that that will happen, and, and the only way it will happen is if there's a fire lit under the McConnell um, regime, or there is pressure on Biden from his left that basically says, "No, this is we 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 need more, Joe. We don't need you sitting back and playing nice nice with these guys." You know, when, when Trump took over, there was not an ounce of bipartisanship, and the Republicans didn't give a damn. They basically moved their agenda at Blitzkrieg. In, in Obama's case, and hopefully not in Biden's case, there's this notion of we've got to be the adults in the room, we've got to prove to the more moderate parts of our base that we're serious about trying to be nice-nice. That just doesn't work. This is not that era. 
the Republicans have become a hard right-wing party that wants to annihilate the Democrats. They don't, they don't think, they, they're not seeking to simply weaken the Democrats. They want to annihilate the Democrats, and they want to annihilate the Democrats before the demographics of the United States changes dramatically and makes it more difficult for them to do that electorally. Yeah, time, time is obviously running out for him, which gets us back to that whole fear that so many white people have about, about the cha- changes that are happening in, the, in, the, in our country. I remember when Obama got elected, and, uh, of course, and, and I remember that his campaign basically morphed into, a, 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 I think it was called Organizing for America or something right. like that. And I went to the first meeting of a group. A group was pulled together here in Bend, Oregon, and I went to it, and it became really... Uh, it was the only meeting I went to. It became very clear that the the purpose of that organization was to support anything, uh, and I um, this is generalization, but essentially to support anything that Barack Obama did, and right. and that I had no interest in that. You know, I mean, right. that was like you're you're right. I mean, we have to light this fire. So now we and we've seen this repeated, and repeated, and repeated in history. So since 2016, here in Bend and nationally as well, but obviously here in Bend, we we saw. You know, a huge women's march and, and, and organization since then for four years. We've seen the rise of Indivisible Bend. We've seen the rise of a local group called the Vocal Seniority, which is really highly organized, and other groups. And so we've seen all of this stuff. And my concern, uh, and hopefully some of them are listening, my concern is that we can't just sit back and say, wow, you know, and wipe, you know, like our, dust our hands off and say, mission accomplished, that we need these organizations now more than ever, to, to light that fire. That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, I think that there's a lot of people who have painful memories of what happened when Obama for America became organized for America, whatever. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, was, um, it was the demobilization of an army. Yeah. And, and it, was, it was a terrible uh, decision, uh, much like what happened in the Rainbow Coalition. Yes, in, uh, in, in 1989, when Jesse Jackson essentially demobilized the Rainbow Coalition, and it, it had a devastating impact, not just politically, but on the consciousness of, a, of many people who had been, uh, who had believed that the Rainbow Coalition be- could, could become an instrument for uh, mass progressive democratic politics. Uh, and then it basically imploded. Yeah. Um, I called it a coup against himself that, that, uh, that uh, Jackson carried out. And in effect, Obama did exactly the same thing. Yeah. He knew full well that keeping, a, um, keeping the organization going as an independent vehicle would threaten the Democratic Party leadership. And unfortunately, he shut it down and people let him. Which often happens. Yes. People become very passive. Yes, it, it, it's, that's very, very true. And one of the things I should add to you know, locally, and this is just, not, you know, and I'm sure it's also happening in other, in other communities as well, is, is since the, um, since the, mur- the murder of, of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis, that we have also have newer groups. We have the Central Oregon Peacekeepers. We have the uh, Central Oregon Black Leadership Association. We have the Central Oregon Diversity Project, all led by young people of color, and so now we, we have even more, you know, progressive organizations, and hopefully 
all these organizations will continue to um, to build and build and organize. Though I, I want to get back to something else that you mentioned because I've seen it here, and and I I, I want to be. I mean, I, I we've seen some really great activities here. Uh, by a lot of the organizations that I've mentioned, Indivisible, Vocal Seniority, the Keep Peacekeepers, etc. A lot of it has been what you and Carl refer to as street heat, mm-hmm. and 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 it's all really good, you know. I mean, I, I, it's it's mobilizing people, but there there is a difference in my view between organizing people and mobilizing people, and and I think what you talk about in in your article is that street heat is great as a tactic. Could you expand on that? Yes. I mean, what Carl and I are getting at is that there is a fight that progressives need to engage in for power, quite explicitly, not simply to influence power, which is what many of us are very comfortable doing, um, but really fighting for power. And when I say we're comfortable, that, that you have people out there, including you know some um, celebrities, that are very comfortable with the idea of carrying out protests, mass actions, to try to force the elite to do this or that. Now, certainly there's a role for that. But what that misses is that there needs to be a shift in power, and there needs to be a shift towards the, the, the assumption of power by traditionally oppressed and marginalized groups, particularly by working people. And, and so that means we need organizations that develop, that create and identify candidates and build organizations so that we can actually carry out that fight for power. Um, so that's different than let's just all join in this or that campaign. It really is saying let's take on the system. Now, a lot of people don't want to do this, Michael, because it's very messy. You know, when you, when you talk about fighting for power, you, you're talking about building coalitions, frequently with people you don't like. Yeah. And many of us are purists. I mean, we don't want to admit it, but we are purists. And we only want to work with people that we like, maybe people that look like us, uh, maybe people of our generation, um, and we don't want to engage in the kind of mass coalitional politics that means that you have to find common agreement with people that you may not know very well, um, organizations with which you've had issues, sometimes perhaps even significant differences. That's messy. And then once you're elected, my God, then, then the, the issue of governance, comes up. You know, I um, uh, the other day the, the former mayor of New York David Dinkins passed away. Yeah. He was the first and only black mayor of New York City and was a very progressive guy. Um, but one of the things in his administration was that central to his victory was building a strong unity between the African-American electorate and the Puerto Rican electorate. But after he was elected, he didn't pay enough attention to keeping that unity alive. And, and so what ended up, ended up happening in sections of the Puerto Rican community was that people started feeling let down. 
The reality is that if you're going to run and then govern, you've got to be constantly thinking about the coalitions, not just demographic, obviously, but all kinds of coalitions that need to be put into place and sustained in order to advance your agenda. Uh, and I, I remember um, some years back I was in South Africa, and I ended up meeting this guy from the uh, what, what's called the Landless Workers Movement, the MST. And we were talking at that point, uh, Lula da Silva was the president uh, of Brazil, and he was a self, still a self-identified socialist and was the leader of the Workers' Party. And, but there had been a number of criticisms of Lula, uh, for caving into neoliberal economics. And so I asked this guy from MST, I said, you know, the way I understand it, the MST is very critical of Lula and, and blah, 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 blah. And the guy stopped me and said, look, our approach towards Lula is this. We don't, we don't mainly throw rocks at Lula. What we raise constantly is what did Lula promise to do what are the things in his agenda that have been left outstanding? And that's what we press him on. And I thought that that was a very sophisticated way of thinking about politics. And it's so different from us in the United States. Progressives, at the drop of a hat, are ready to condemn someone as a sellout, yeah. as opposed to understanding the nature of coalitional politics. Uh, what you're talking about really hits home for me here in Bend, we just recently had a, a city council election where we elected uh, four progressives. We now have a, a, a six to one progressive block on, and I genuine. We also elected the first woman of color, a, a queer woman of color, to the city council, and there's going to be a lot of expectations, and they are going to be um, having to deal with the reality of being in office and how that's. It's different, and uh, so uh, for yeah. them, and, and we also we we elected we we tossed out a couple of incumbents uh, locally and, and on the county commission for one, and elected an Asian American man there, who's a you know progressive, and so it's going to be real interesting to see how this kind of stuff plays out. That we have to, it's going to be a lot of pressure on, on the, these new progressively uh, progressives that have been elected to do some things that maybe they can't get done right away. Well, that's right, but. By the same token, uh, what we should not do is give anybody a honeymoon period. Now, that doesn't mean to act like an ass. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but what it means is that um, when we elect progressives, we have to always keep in mind that from the moment that they're elected, there's pressure from their right yeah. that they start feeling. The, the more conservative forces... Uh, come at them, and I don't, I don't mean just like fascist. I mean the more conservative elements, even within their own party, come at them, and and start saying, now you know you got to tone this down, you got to be more reasonable. You have to, you're in a different world, and blah 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 blah, and and so that pressure is on, and and uh, in those circumstances, if you're not getting pressure from your left the likelihood is that you're going to start caving. And that's what people have to always keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. So I want, I want to say to people that um, 
if you if you Google, I, I'm pretty sure that if you Google post-election reckoning, new hypothesis for the road ahead, or in Bill Fletcher Jr.'s name, Carl Davidson's name, this article, it was published under the auspices of organizing upgrade. There's got to be a way that you can look at it. And, and I want to encourage people to do that, <coughs> excuse me, because we are just not, we're not able to touch on everything that, that, that you and, and Carl spoke about in the time that we have. We have about 10 minutes left if I'm going to be able to get uh, that Sergio Mendez song in at the end, which okay. I'd like to do. But I, So I want to kind of jump ahead, if you don't mind. And you've already you've spoken a bit about who are our friends and adversaries. But it, it, within the context of that, you talk about um, racialized or racial capitalism. And, and this is a term that... Um, well, I, I can tell you that a lot. There are a lot of people in Bend that I've talked to that are. This is kind of uh, something that that they're uh, starting to talk about, both black and white people, and and people and Latinx as well. And it's a concept uh, that I, I know was originally proposed, or at least these, this guy uh, Cedric Robinson is given credit for possibly initially raising it. Angela Davis has used the term recently. Robin D.G. Kelly has used the term recently. What do you mean by racial or racialized capitalism? What What is meant by that? And if you could just sort of explain to people what that is and how that kind of capitalism functions in the U.S. today. Yeah, and it's a term that, despite it being in the article, I'm actually ambivalent about, um, which I'll explain. But, but the term... And it's associated, yes, with Cedric Robinson, Manning Marable, and numbers, numbers of other people. Is to aims at getting people to understand that U.S. capitalism, in particular, is not some sort of abstract economic system onto which is attached issues of racism, patriarchy, etc., but that integral to the development of the system has been race. Um, and so if you look at the history of the United States, you see that from its inception with the colony in um, Jamestown, you have the establishment of a settler colony of Europeans where the objective was to seize the land of the native peoples, not to come to some sort of accommodation, and then ultimately the introduction of African forced labor that becomes racial slaves over the course of the 1600s. Um, the reason that I'm, I'm ambivalent about it, but I use the term at certain points to highlight that there is no abstract economic system, is that the more I look at capitalism, uh, the more I conclude that there isn't anything other than racialized capitalism. In other words, there's not an unracialized capitalism, except perhaps in the imagination of certain economists. That uh, if you look at capitalism in terms of the way that it was constructed, particularly uh, from the 1400s on, um, it was constructed on the basis of war, uh, piracy, uh, the seizing of land, the annihilation of populations, the enslavement, and the, and the notion that becomes very central in the colonial projects of the Spanish, the Portuguese, the English, the French, in um, particular, the, um, the, the construction of a racial system of domination and social control. 
and that and although in the different colonies of these European powers race looked differently, it was not identical. What what happens in what we now know as Latin America is very different than what happens in the thirteen British colonies. Um, except obviously there's subordination of the Africans and the Indians. But the way that race played itself out was different and must be understood. Not that it was better or worse, it was just different. So it was in the construction of capitalism that race becomes a central component and not something that was just simply added on. What gets added on at a certain moment in the 13 colonies is the transformation of the African status from indentured servants and some slaves to all slaves, and and then and then the slave for uh, slavery for one's life and for the life of one's child. So the development of chattel slavery uh, that is something that is introduced and evolves and becomes codified in the 1600s. But race was right there from the very beginning when those settlers set down in uh, in Jamestown. And actually, um, one could argue when they um, they attempted the colony in uh, in North Carolina in the 1580s, it was the the notion of this is land for the taking. Yeah, yeah. So this historical the, the this historical analysis. I mean, uh, an important point is that. Um, we still have this racial capitalism. I mean, when we yeah. uh, when we when we say racism is systemic, that's kind of what we're saying, right? I mean, that's that's, right. it's part of the system. And so, you know, when people say the system is, I mean, you know, uh, the, you know, it's been said, you know, the system is working as intended, right? right. Um, rather than that, the system is somehow not working well. It is for from. That's right. From the power perspective, from the perspective of the powerful people, it's working fine. <laughs> That's right. And and for your white listeners, one of the things I would say is that any time you want to think about the existence or non-existence of race, you just need to ask yourself a question, which is, would you like to switch places with a black person in particular who is in your same income bracket? In your same income bracket, would you like to switch places? And uh, and then let's talk about what it would mean. Because you see, the thing that, that folks have to understand about race is that it's not about who likes one another. It's about a system of a, of a differential in treatment between populations. And, and so it's not like... Um, uh, you know, a poor white person that says, wow, I'd like to have the money of Oprah Winfrey. Well, so would everybody else, right? But that's, that's not comparable. It's, it's more, I would say, to uh, a working-class white person or even someone who was um, an entrepreneur uh, who was white. What you have to think about is every day of your life, do you have to look over your shoulder? Do you have to keep asking the question when a police car pulls be- behind you whether your life is in danger? Um, do you have to worry when you go in for medical care, if you assume you have medical care, 
that you're not going to get the same treatment as another population because of your race. Um, do you have to worry about whether you're going to get the right uh, um, appropriate housing loans and are going to be able to buy in whatever neighborhood you want to go into, right? So anytime I hear a white person say something like, well, I don't see race, or there really isn't a racial problem, I'm trying to figure out what universe they exist in, yeah. right? Because, because what they're missing is that there is this demonstrable differential in treatment, and that is something that was introduced in the very... Uh, the immediate construction of capitalism, and particularly U.S. capitalism. Yeah, and, and and we haven't even gotten into class and class solidarity, and we're running out of time, unfortunately. Yeah. This has been a great—I I just really appreciate your taking this time. And, I, you know, I mean, I guess well, I, I raise that now with only a few minutes to go, but nonetheless, I think it is important that— those that white white people and white workers white workers in particular but working class but even middle class white people have to understand that solidarity with people of color is that you have more in common you have more in common you know you don't you know a white person right. working in a in a in a in a, a at McDonald's or something has more in common with a Latinx person working next to them than you do with the white boss um and and that needs to be constantly reinforced in my view and constantly People need to understand that because that's right. that's we are the many, right? It's I don't know. not it's not a moral question. It is a political question, political right. with a small p. That the construction of race was not simply to oppress certain groups, but to convince uh, entire populations of laboring people that they had nothing in common. Yeah, and that they're they're that the, as you said that. The commonality should, that should be encouraged is between the poor and the rich among these people that are called white, as opposed to a commonality among those who are suffering under the, the same um, system. Yeah, yeah. So we're running out of time, but I do want to, I always like to ask, and I, I, hopefully I can have you back on, we can continue this conversation at some Absolutely. point. But is there any, I always like to give my my uh, guests an opportunity, if there's anything, I mean, we have, there's a lot still to touch on, but is there any, are there any like closing remarks, any, any ideas that you want to leave with our listeners uh, before we get to the Sergio Mendez song? Yeah, study history, study history, and study history. That's what I want to emphasize, that you never figure out the, the maniacal nature of, the, of our opponents unless you study history and understand the way that the system has been constructed. And one of the better books uh, that I, I recommend for everybody is called The Many-Headed Hydra, H-Y-D-R-A, The Many-Headed Hydra, which you can actually find online. Uh, and uh, one of the authors is named Linebaugh, and it is about the construction of what came to be the United States. All right. Thanks so much for that okay. That reading uh, information. I really appreciate it. I haven't read that book, and I'm going to go get it. Great. Thanks again, Bill Fletcher, Jr., for coming on. Uh, Excellent. All right. Thank say, you so much. Thank you, and say hi to Fernando next time you talk to him. Will do. All right. Take care. Then. Take care. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. 
KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information and a program schedule, go to kpov.org. We value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org.